Welcome to the Onyx Report, a program that critically analyzes the experiences, histories, and perceptions of black males in American society across age, class, region, sexuality, and profession. I'm your host, Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Fresno State, black male studies scholar, and black male advocate. In the program, we examine current events and major issues using an empirically driven black masculinist theoretical lens, thus including such concepts as the black male dual economy, anti-black misandry, phallicism, the subordinate male target hypothesis, and the black gynarchy. Our goal is to remind people, including black men themselves, of black men's humanity. Join us every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific, either on YouTube or innerlightradio.com. All right, all right. Welcome back to the Onyx Report. Hope everybody is as well as possible on this 1st of July. Uh, as the virus apparently has kicked back into effect, uh, states are beginning to roll back, uh, including California. And I hope that uh, you all are as safe and as healthy as possible. I want to first shout out my boy, uh, Sarah, who shows uh, are on Tuesday nights. He was on last night. I uh, wanted to extend him, uh, you know, a, a blessed solar return uh, today. So I wish him well, and I hope he is indeed at the beach with his feet kicked up uh, or meditating, one of the two at the moment, you know. But, um, you know, as we do at the Onyx Report, we deal with black men and news that is pertinent to them. And today I have a guest whose research and work definitely speak directly to that, but most particularly in regard to black male athletes. So we'll be getting to that in a moment. And where I like to start is, um, yeah, where I like to start is to actually get uh, some of these uh, current events in place before we kind of deal, bring in our guest. Uh, this one is a little different. This is not necessarily a news report. And in fact, it's based on an episode that is quite a few, I think five, at least over five years old at this point. It's an episode of TV One's Unsung. And it's the episode dealing with Ike and Tina Turner. It's been kind of hard to find lately, but I believe you can find a copy of it on YouTube. And I would urge you to check it out because it deals with some aspects of Ike's life that you won't find in the What's Love Got to Do With It film. Right. In particular, uh, it talks about his father being lynched and although surviving the lynching for a period of time, uh, it was said that his intestines were literally beaten outside of his body. And because the local hospitals would not treat black people, they literally had to create a tent for him in the backyard of the house where uh, his, his family kind of treated him for a while. But it was said that he, his intestines could be smelled for miles um, and after he eventually passed away uh, from the ages of six to 12, Ike was then raped by several grown women. So as you know, the Onyx Report takes a black masculinist approach to analyzing phenomena. And when we look at the lives of Ike and Tina Turner, what we see, as is the case with many black men, um, they're, we're dehumanized, we're made into these walking monsters and we're not really often given context. And I don't mean that to excuse any black man's behavior, but I find when it comes to other groups, we can humanize them and understand why they've done different things. But when it comes to black men, we seem to be quite comfortable with leaving them at the status of boogeymen. But if you can actually look at the life that Ike led and the time period they lived in, uh, a, an episode like this might help us understand them a bit more than the theatrical film's performance, right? Uh, next up, I would urge people to check out an article in, it's on a website entitled InTheseTimes.com. 
The title of the article is In the U.S., where lynchings were prevalent, police are more likely to shoot black people. So, uh, excuse me, in U.S. counties where lynching lynchings were more prevalent, police are more likely to shoot black people. Um, subtitle is Areas with Higher Numbers of Lynchings from 1877 to 1950 Have More Officer-Involved Shootings of Black Americans Today. So the argument that history plays into our current experiences is often dismissed by people who like to say history has nothing to do with the present. That was ancient history. That was a long time ago. But we find that many of these attitudes and perspectives are, uh, you know, uh, passed down intergenerationally. Right. And so we can see how the environment, the policies uh, in place, the treatment, the culture and the specific attitudes that are no doubt passed on through family might play a serious role in the treatment of African-American people, most particularly in uh, those areas in the South where lynchings were in, were, were in, uh, in high practice. Next up, article on news.yahoo.com. Two teenage boys shot to death after asking man how tall he was while buying candy. Uh, this is an article dated on June 28, 2020, uh, and marks out uh, an occurrence uh, that took place Saturday, June 20th at 5 p.m., um, after three teenage boys went to a store in South Chicago to buy candy and ended up having a brief encounter with a 19-year-old Leroy Battle inside the establishment. Uh, and from there, uh, the victims were walking in the store. Uh, they saw Battle standing in line while at the store, and the victims commented that he was tall. They asked him how tall he was and hoped that he'd be, they'd be tall someday. And uh, Deputy Chief and Detectives Brendan Dennehan unfortunately said, or said, unfortunately, we will never even see the full growth of these poor children. Three boys uh, then left the store, proceeded to walk home together when police say battle approached them and began shooting. So unclear as to what's entirely happened here, but definitely go check the article. And I haven't checked for updates, so you can see if there's been any developments since then uh, as far as clarification is concerned. Um, next up, check an article on NewYorkTimes.com. Uh, this article is dated June 25th, 2020, written by David Leonard, and the title is The Black-White Wage Gap is as Big as It Was in 1950. Now, this is particularly interesting because, as we found out very recently, one out of two black people have lost their employment since February, and we know that when it came to black men in, in over 30 major cities, uh, black men's unemployment rate was already between 40 and 50 percent. So when you factor in uh, the historical narrative, what we're finding is that black men are still, um, you know, black men in particular are still there in regard to uh, where we were in the 1950s in relation to white men. So in terms of the chart on black male earnings for every dollar earned by white men, white men, black men find themselves between 57 and 67 cents depending on the time period. And that seems to be the latest part of the chart. But you can go more in depth into it in case you're curious so we can have a better understanding of where black men find themselves. And I believe that the chart leaves us at 51 cents on the dollar. But again, many of these studies don't incorporate incarceration. This may be one that does. So take a look at it when you get a chance. Uh, I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on it, but I might do a show on it um, in, the, in the near future just to get more depth to it. But I wanted to just alert you to it, give you a chance to check it out. Next up is an article on CBSNews.com entitled Three Charged in Death of a Black Teen Who Died After Being Restrained at a Youth Facility. This article is uh, written June 27, 2020. 
and basically uh, frames a young African-American male, 16-year-old Cornelius Frederick, um, who was uh, who was killed by what they call restraint asphyxia. So basically, this uh, teenager who was at a youth facility in Kalamazoo, Michigan, had been charged. Um, our three staff members, I should say, at the Kalamazoo uh, youth facility were charged with the death of this young teenager after he apparently threw a sandwich and they held him down in an unnecessarily brutal fashion and took this young man's life. Uh, the staff members, Michael Mosley, Zachary Solace, and Heather McLogan, were charged with involuntary manslaughter and second-degree child abuse. According to the charging documents, Mosley and Solace are accused of restraining Frederick in a grossly negligent manner. McLogan, who was a nurse at the facility, is accused of failing to seek timely medical care for the team. Right? Now, this goes back in a strange kind of way to what I just talked about with Ike Turner in that once black males are, are, are conveniently categorized as nothing more than monsters, whose humanity doesn't need to be reflected upon, uh, it's easy to see how people can, can actually engage in these kind of acts and not think anything of it. You know, because it's easy to do that when you have someone that you don't necessarily regard as human. So I would uh, urge you to check this article out and stay current um, on these kind of things uh, so we can kind of keep track because these these stories pop up and disappear, uh, especially when it comes to black males. So, yeah, you'll get you might get one or two that um, get some international attention, especially these days, since we have such a, a fetishistic relationship with black male death. Uh, they may become popular if there's video of them being killed, but if not, they tend to fall to the wayside. So again, uh, when it comes to police abuse or police homicide, we're talking about two to 300 black men a year. I would say, you know, we know about two or three uh, on a wide scale at best. Usually it's between one or two. And again, as if they're caught on video dying. But uh, for the rest of them, we often don't know. And that doesn't even include those killed by vigilantes. So uh, keep in mind, those numbers uh, are are actually quite low. OK, uh, another, another another one up. This is dated. Uh, uh, this looks like May 2020. This is on Axios.com entitled almost half of the U.S. population does not have a job. So we are currently seeing some unprecedented uh kind of issues and I know I don't have to tell you that many of you are living with it as we speak but the article states the percentage of Americans who are employed sits at just over 50% according to the Bureau of Labor Labor Statistics uh, the figure plunged to 51.3 in April lowest level on record and edged up to 52.8% in May right so we're 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 probably at about the mid 40s in terms of, uh, I know we're over 42 million who have filed for unemployment, but that doesn't include people who are not technically unemployed. They're not uh, working hours at their jobs, but they haven't technically been fired um, and find themselves in a kind of holding position. Um, and, you know, so that, that's the kind of situation we're finding ourselves in. Um, and hopefully uh, we'll be able to see some changes soon because I know people are definitely struggling. But the issue is, as the, as the old saying goes, when white uh, society, when white folks catch a cold, black folk catch pneumonia. So when we talk about unemployment, when we talk about poverty, when we talk about homelessness, uh, incarceration, when you name it, um, it tends to be more extreme, even if the news doesn't capture that. 
Um, so please be mindful of that, uh, especially when engaging one another. Uh, let's try and be as supportive as possible because so many of us are going through so many different things that it's quite, uh, quite ridiculous at this point. Last one up, article on Forbes.com. And this one is dated, uh, I hate when they don't put the immediate dates in here. Here we go, June 23rd, 2020. Um, this is uh, entitled, Doctors Issuing Unlawful Do Not Resuscitate Orders for Disabled COVID Patients. Uh, look at that one on Forbes.com, and it's showing you um, how disabled uh, uh, victims of the COVID virus are given DNRs uh, without consent in many instances. And there was a recent article that I published on my, I posted on my Facebook page of an African American disabled man who apparently had not been fed for six days and was left to literally starve to death. He was suffering from COVID, uh, was taken to the hospital. And at that point they decided that uh, it wasn't worth feeding him because it was said that his quality of life was already low because of his disability and literally starved to death. So these are the kinds of conditions that black men in particular are finding themselves in uh, amidst this pandemic. Uh, it's reflective of the experiences many black men have already been having regardless of context. But again, as the situation gets extreme for everybody, it tends to get even more extreme for those at the bottom. <clears throat> so keep that in mind. Now, today we have a, we have a treat. Uh, we have a scholar coming in from, uh, well, let me just go ahead and actually just read uh, uh, what I've actually kind of written about him because I want to make sure that he's regarded with the uh, the due respect that he, he has more than earned. This is Dr. Joseph N. Cooper. He is the author of From Exploitation Back to Empowerment, Black Male Holistic Underdevelopment Through Sport and Miseducation. And that is through Peter Lang uh, 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 Publications 2019. Uh, and he's here to discuss his book and his research in general. He is the Endowed Chair of Sport Leadership and Administration in the Department of Leadership and Education at University of Massachusetts, Boston. He's a professor of sports management, gender and race and sport, racism and other forms of oppression, higher education and qualitative research. He's the recipient of the 2019 Yukon National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, Youth and College Chapter Faculty Lifetime Achievement Award. Um, and he's accomplished this at a relatively young age. Uh, but I definitely want to shout out uh, how incredible his CV is. So let's welcome Dr. Joseph N. Cooper to the Onyx Report. How are you doing, sir? Hey, good evening, Dr. Johnson. Great to be with you this evening. Oh, man, glad you could be here. Glad you could be here. Um, as you know, I like to start by kind of talking about uh, where people have come from and, and, and how they, you know, kind of grew up, because I think it's important, especially for younger black males to kind of see the, 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 the widespread possibilities of where you know, many people are coming from and what they've been able to accomplish. So if you wouldn't mind, tell us, where are you from and where were you raised? No, great. Thank you uh, for asking. And I, I always think it's important to understand our past. Um, when I was in graduate school, I had a professor who uh, used the cliche, uh, research is me search. Okay. And if we apply an African uh, or Afrocentric lens to that cliche, we would say research is we search. Okay. And so knowing from whence we came helps explain who we are today and where we're going. Uh, I was born in Memphis, Tennessee. Oh. Um, so very famous city. Uh, my parents, uh, my father, Armand Jamale Cooper, 
and my mother, uh, Jewel Egerton Cooper. Um, mm -hmm. Shortly after uh, I was born, I'm the youngest of two. I have an older brother, uh, Adam Cooper. Uh, we relocated to Greensboro, North Carolina. Okay. Uh, my mother is originally from uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. And for many of you who remember the civil rights movement, Greensboro was, uh, you know, arguably considered the birthplace of the sit-in movement. Mm -hmm. uh, there were four black students, uh, David Richmond, Franklin McCain, Joseph McNeil, Ezell Blair Jr., uh, who sat at the Woolworths counter. Uh, mm -hmm. At the time, it was white only. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they courageously sat and initiated a sit-in movement um, that was obviously also connected to uh, SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, mm -hmm. um, and uh, really challenging racial injustice uh, in the city of Greensboro. So that's my hometown. I'm very proud of it. I grew up there. My mother uh, is a uh, professor or associate dean at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro, Okay. Um, but she previously taught at Bennett College, which is one of the historically uh, black women's colleges uh, in the uni in in the United States. Mm -hmm. So my early socialization, not only from a, um, a academic educational standpoint, but from a sociocultural standpoint, um, was at Bennett College and at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University, which as of today, it's the largest HBCU in terms of student enrollment. Uh, in the United States. My father um, uh, has a, was a psychiatrist, uh, had a medical background. Um, and in North Carolina, um, sports are very, very popular. Um, mm -hmm. I, I always tell people, particularly the sport of basketball, um, is akin to a religion in North Carolina. So when you talk about how <laughs> the socialization impacts young black males growing up in that context, uh, it's extremely powerful. I mean, I was watching, they were covering Vince Carter the other day, and I was thinking, even though he's from Florida originally, he played basketball in North Carolina. And I was thinking to myself, man, the greatest dunker in NBA history played basketball in North Carolina, and the greatest basketball player, uh, arguably the greatest basketball player, Michael Jordan, is mm -hmm. grew up in North Carolina and played there. So, um, and even today, if you look at the NBA, Three of the top 10 point guards are all from North Carolina, Steph Curry, Chris Paul, and John Wall. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about how sports were integrated into my childhood, although I grew up um, being exposed to black professionals in a, in a, in a mm -hmm. range of areas, right. uh, sport was definitely a big part of my identity development and as we'll get into talking to when I, I talk a little bit later in the interview about the research, ultimately, um, I had to identify my holistic self beyond sport once uh, my athletic career concluded. Uh, but that's just a little bit about my background. Well, no, actually, that's where I was going to go next. I was going to ask if you played because, um, I mean, clearly, you know, in your family, education is huge. You know, the mm -hmm. focus on um you know, a professional standing uh, in, in in both the university, but in, ter in terms of, in, you know, in larger society, it sounds like your father, you know, did he practice? I mean, was he, did he have a practice or was he, was he teaching psychology? No, no, he, yeah, he had his own practice. Uh, he okay. was a psychiatrist. Um, right. And uh, yeah, in both my father and my mother's family, um, education was heavily emphasized. My father grew up 
even though he was born in Nashville, Tennessee, he grew up in Monrovia, Liberia. So there's obviously quite a bit of African-American historical context in the country of Liberia and the the history of Liberia uh, (laughs) and the dynamics there. So that was a part of his lived experience in Liberia as well as across uh, the continent of Africa, soccer is the most popular sport, football, right. uh, which is right. what is known globally. Right. Um, so he was much more familiar with that sport, which I played all the, from my child, from uh, my youth days all the way up till freshman year in high school, I played soccer. Okay. Um, but my, and my mother, she was not an athlete, um, but what she always taught me was that sport was a vehicle to help develop myself beyond just wins and losses. Mm -hmm. So she was always uh, cultivating that critical consciousness in me uh, when I was participating in sports, you know, Mm -hmm. getting me to ask questions about, you know, who who's operating this event, this tournament, how many black players are on your team, who are the coaches Um, and different things of that nature, which at an early age, I'm beginning to understand the systems in which we're existing in. Um, but and another thing, my mother was grew up in Raleigh um, during the heart of the civil rights movement. So, you know, mm. her and her classmates and her siblings were among those of the cohorts that were first assimilating into um, schools. I know we oftentimes use the term integration, uh, but my colleagues and I, uh, Dr. J- Jaffas Kenyatta Cavill, Uh, He's a professor at Texas Southern University, a preeminent scholar on HBCU athletics. And then my other colleague, Dr. Jeremy Cheeks, uh, he's a professor at Alabama A&M University. Um, And we talk about uh, Dr. Cavill was had an engineering background. And he says, look, in engineering, integration means that there's a transference of energy going both ways. Uh, What took place post Brown v. Board of Education and the civil rights movement was really assimilation. Um, And so my mother growing up in North Carolina, um, which is obviously a former Confederate state, um, deeply rooted in in racism, um, anti-black racism specifically, really instilled in me having that critical consciousness in sport. Uh, So when I was growing up, basketball and soccer were my favorite sports. Um, I really wasn't big into football. Um, Football, it became more popular in North Carolina over the years but a lot of people don't remember the carolina panthers the nfl team um they're a relatively young franchise compared to many of the other nfl teams um across the country and football in the state of north carolina really is not as popular as states like florida and georgia and texas so basketball was really the primary sport and when you think about kind of establishing your boyhood into manhood if you're skilled in basketball, you get a different type of reverence and a different type of identity affirmation uh, than if you do well in any other sport. So, so well, let's back up a little bit. So you played through college or through high school? I played all the way through high school. Um, my freshman year, I attended, uh, similar to a lot of young uh, black males growing up in North Carolina, I wanted to be like Michael Jordan. So I attended North Carolina uh, at Chapel Hill. Uh, I wasn't recruited to play basketball there. Um, uh, when I was in high school, um, I had uh, recruit recruiting attention, no full scholarship offers from schools like University of Nebraska, East Carolina, 
University, uh, Furman University. So a lot of mid-major uh, Division One schools, but I didn't get any full scholarship offers, um, even though you know I was pretty accomplished in, in our area in North Carolina and in the region. Um, so my goal was when I go to North Carolina, I'm going to make the JV team uh, because they had a junior varsity team and then I'd get moved up to varsity. So my freshman year, I uh, made the JV team. Um, this is back in 2002, uh, fall 2002. Um, and during that time, you know, early on, uh, after making the team, it became clear to me that, you know, not only is it going to be a lot of work, but there's no guarantee that you're going to get a scholarship. And if you do get moved up to varsity, um, you're not going to get an extensive amount of playtime, especially at my size. Uh, I'm 5'9". Uh, back wow. then, my playing weight was about 185. So uh, the star point guard on the team there at the time was Raymond Felton, uh, who's still in the NBA now. Um, in high school, two out of my four years of high school, Chris Paul's team knocked us out of the playoffs. So okay. I've always competed against the highest level of competition. And so at freshman year, once I realized that even as skilled as I was, I just wasn't quite good enough uh, to make varsity. And even if I made it, I knew that I wasn't going to play a lot. And the competitor in me, I just, I, I wouldn't want to be on the team if I couldn't play. I've always been, if I'm going to be on the team, I want to work hard enough to be able to play. So I stepped away from the game my freshman year um, after making the team. Uh, it was a very tough decision. Um, and that actually is what led into uh, what a lot of former athletes experience is what I call a post-athletic career identity crisis. Mm -hmm. um, and it has a particular acute impact on black males uh, because of some of the broader socio-ecological uh, circumstances and conditions that we face in society. Uh, Dr. Harry Edwards, which many of you are familiar with, who uh, spearheaded the Olympic Project for Human Rights, in the 1960s and was a very outspoken activist and using sport as a tool for social change. Mm -hmm. He called it the post-athletic career disengagement trauma. Mm -hmm. And so he was one of the first ones to really categorize when your athletic career concludes that it, it can be a form of trauma. Right. So that after I uh, stopped playing basketball during my freshman year, stopped playing competitively, um, I really was at a loss for who I was as a black male when I was 17, just turning 18 years old. And, uh, you know, that led me down a journey to really refine myself. And that's a part of why the book is titled From Exploitation Back to Empowerment, because right. I feel like for us as African people and as black people, we were created uh, from greatness and we come from greatness. But um, oftentimes, depending on where we grow up, where we're born, we are exposed to circumstances that are unfavorable to cultivating our greatness. So in the context of sport, many of us experience various forms of exploitation, commodification, dehumanization, and what is popular in the literature called uh, athletic identity foreclosure. And mm -hmm. I definitely experienced all of those and did not realize it um, until after my career concluded and I had more time to analyze what took place with me and why it impacted my psyche and my existence so much. Well, and that's incredibly important to, to look at, too, because so much of our of our status, so much of our social currency comes in 
going into entertainment and being recognized only in specific spheres. So, you know, when you talk about the kind of trauma that can come about from having to formally acknowledge that your athletic career is over and you need to redefine yourself in a new way, that I can understand how that'd be difficult to do if athleticism was a possibility, because obviously for the overwhelming majority of people, uh, it's not even a possibility. But if it's a possibility and you're out playing and, and you're navigating through college offers and so on and so forth, there's a there's a great deal of pressure, it would seem, placed on you at that point to succeed in those ways. So when you had to go through that transition uh, of, of saying, OK, my, my athletic career is over, let me redefine myself. It sounds like you know, the academic route, it sounds like, you know, the legacy that your, your, your mother was, was, is still, it sounds like she's still blazing. Um, did that directly come into play or did you, was your decision to go into academics purely kind of, uh, you know, something that came out of a whole different context? What, what was that transition that said, you know, let me go into academia, let me be, let me go into research. How did that come about? No, that's a great question. Um, to, to get to your former point, I really want the audience to know, for a lot of young black males, historically, if we look back in the antebellum period, there were select black males who were extracted from the plantation to participate in sports like boxing, mm -hmm. uh, horse racing, mm -hmm. and because of their athletic ability, they received favorable treatment. So sports from a, a historical context within the United States. Now, in African cultures, physical activity and sport was always connected to communalism, spirituality, um, even in some cases training uh, young men in preparation for um, battle against uh, outside entities or other entities. But within the context of the United States, sports largely was limited to European whites. A European white American. So when blacks were granted access to it, um, it was actually viewed as almost a badge of humanity. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's an important point for us to understand socioculturally and historically that black people's attraction to sport is not just for the glitz and glamour and the fame, which is a part of the, the disillusion, but it's also a, a deeper desire to be treated as a human being. When you mm -hmm. think about it, if you go to any um, city across the country and you'll see a lot of even small towns, if they have a famous black athlete or a famous athlete, they'll name a road after them. They may have mm -hmm. a holiday if they mm -hmm. want a Super Bowl. So mm -hmm. their elevated status, when you compare that to the normalized oppression that black males experience, um, it's almost as if I'm only human when I wear the uniform. Right. And so, therefore, when the career ends, I'm no longer human anymore. Right. That is a much bigger or much more drastic form of trauma than we often discuss. Mm -hmm. um, it's because it's when, when a lot of basketball players will say, like, sport is my sanctuary or sport is my place of peace. And I always say, and I write in the book, that statement says more about their world outside of sport than it does mm -hmm. the sport itself. Right. Because if sport is your sanctuary, then that would mean that everything else is essentially, you know, uh, a, a very bad place for you. Right. right. I mean, you can use all kind of descriptions to describe it. So I think that the humanity piece and we have to ask ourselves as a society, why do we treat black males who are talented in sports so much better 
um, mm-hmm. than we do black males who are not involved in sport or even former black male athletes. Because mm-hmm. you can imagine, uh, or black males who are former athletes, if you were known for your athletic ability, that's an intoxicating feeling. People mm-hmm. want to be close to you. People mm-hmm. admire you. People see you. Right. And then when you're no longer that anymore, um, it's almost akin to um, having a certain type of spotlight. And, yeah. and even from a, uh, a, 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 a you feel like you're affirmed in a way that you can't get that from any other type sure. of uh, behavior. Sure. Sure. And so that's a big part of it. But in terms of how I got into academia, well, um, and just, and just real quick, it doesn't sound like there's any preparation for that transition. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, right. you know, you really here's where I'll give a shout out to other black men and our black uh, women. Oftentimes we'll have family members, friends and people in our lives, as you mentioned, who weren't as heavily invested in sport. Mm. And this is where that support system comes in so much, because. For a lot of black males, either it be through their intimate relationships or through social circles, if they join other organizations, they really begin to rediscover who they really are and who their interests are besides sport. Because if you're really competitive in sport, it's going to take up a large amount of your time. Like if you're really trying to be skilled at something, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Malcolm Gladwell says in his book, the 10,000 hour rule. Mm -hmm. Um, That definitely applies to sport. If you're really serious about it, you're going to put in a lot of time. Well, if you're spending time focusing on your craft in sport, then that's time that's not being spent somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. so that notion of how do you transition effectively out of it um, in the book, I call it identity transition empowerment. Mm -hmm. And so how do we acknowledge the significant investment psychologically, physically, spiritually, emotionally that young people have towards the sport, but also help them effectively transition out of being an athlete. Um, Because it's this idea that you were always a holistic person. Um, You were never just an athlete. If you bought into the lie that you were only an athlete, um, that is about as dehumanizing as, as other stereotypes that plague our people. So you always have to frame Mm -hmm. it to the former athlete as you're always more than just an athlete that's why I commend LeBron James on his more than an athlete platform, because just in using that language, yeah. he's shifting the paradigm in terms of how young athletes view themselves. Oh, uh, and, and it's absolutely necessary because I've had, I mean, in the last 20 years, so many of my students have been athletes and I've watched a startling number of them uh, go from being a college athlete to going right back home. Mm-hmm. where they came from. And it could have been something as simple as tripping down the stairs and injuring themselves, Absolutely. but their entire athletic career is over. All the hopes that they had and the people that raised them, supported them, so on and so forth, the neighborhood, all of that is gone. And they're starting from scratch. And in and, and some instances, you know, sleeping on the couch at their mother's house. So that transition of going from, I'm going to be a pro and support my family and have all of these accolades to you know, people barely know your name mm-hmm. and how am I gonna how am I gonna go in from here? But I do want you I want you to tell us how you transitioned into academia, but if you could, I'd also like for you to tell us a little bit about what you've noticed in your research as far as at, the academic preparation of athletes from K through twelve to college. So if you could kinda give us both and I know we're jumping around here, but uh, I wanna get both perspectives from you while I have you. 
No words. Yeah, they're both very relevant and very interconnected. Um, in terms of how I got into what I do now, as I mentioned, after freshman year, I had an identity crisis. I was a business uh, major my freshman year at Carolina. And, uh, you know, in my mind, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I associated mm -hmm. entrepreneurship uh, with with manhood, right? This right. idea that you own your own business, you don't have yes. to work for the quote unquote the man. Right. Um, so that was an aspiration of mine. And growing up, uh, I was enamored with barbershops. Um, mm -hmm. You know, everything from getting uh, a fresh fade, uh, a shape up, um, and just the communalism among black men in the barbershop was a very uh, powerful and endearing space to me. And I've always yeah. wanted to own a barbershop. Not necessarily did I want to be a barber, but I wanted to own a facility mm -hmm. that cultivated that type of uh, experience for young black men and young black boys. So and, uh, and I was a business speech. major at, at Carolina, but uh, I took a business calculus and macro and microeconomics. Mm. Um, and back then, you know, the classes are, well, the, the economics classes is like 300 people in a class. You have three exams that are like 70% of the grade. Um, even though I went to a high school that academically prepared me for Carolina, um, okay. some of those courses were extremely challenging. Um, the business calculus course was extremely challenging. So I did not do well in those courses. And so the option at that point is either you can retake them to improve your grade to have, because at Carolina at the time, you couldn't get into the business school unless you had a minimum of a, a 3.0 GPA. And actually, they placed a premium on those who had a 3.5 or higher. So once you didn't do well in those gateway courses, which happens to a lot of black students, whether it be at historically white institutions or HBCUs, more often at, at historically white institutions, you're kind of in, in a place of, oh, my whole life I wanted to be a doctor, I wanted to be an engineer, I wanted to do this, but I didn't do well in these gateway courses what do I do now? Mm. So I ended up switching my major five times. I ended up double majoring in sociology and recreation administration. Um, okay. They didn't have a sport major at, in undergrad at the time. They had an exercise science major, but that was more around being an athletic trainer and exercise physiologist, which I wasn't interested in. I was more interested into the being an administrator. So at that time, when I graduated, my goals were either to be an athletic director at a high school or at a college because I said, hey, now that I'm no longer an athlete, I want to be involved in making sure what happened to me doesn't happen to other young black athletes to where they feel lost after their career ends. Right. Um, and I started working at a YMCA uh, after I graduated. And I had not only my mother and my father, uh, mainly my mother and other mentors in my life who were saying, hey, have you thought about graduate school? Mm -hmm. And at the time I didn't because I bought into the whole notion that, you know, once you graduate college, you got a bachelor's, you know, life is supposed to be great after that. Just magically, everything's supposed to be taken care of. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I had friends right. who went to law school. I didn't want to do that. I had friends who uh, got involved in politics and right. education. And I was like, ah, that's not quite me. Um, so I ended up applying to graduate school to a sport administration master's program. Mm -hmm. um, and this is where it really connects to why I got into the academic route. That graduate program required us to do a master's thesis. Mm -hmm. Most sport-based master's programs train you to be a practitioner in the sport industry. So whether you want to be a sport agent, athletic director, general manager, 
those are what most sport program masters programs do but this program had a research focus and that was at north carolina as well and i did my master's thesis on uh critical success factors for black male football student athletes at a predominantly uh white institution and doing that research i began to identify some themes that mapped on to what i experienced you Mm -hmm. know this idea of social isolation aside from athletics Mm -hmm. academic neglect um in terms of the same attention that's applied to young black boys in sports is not always applied for academics and that ties into your second question and when we look at what are the environment the contextual factors that would explain black male engagement and success in sports compared to other educational spaces like the classroom because i do consider sports an educational space I think there's a myth that athletics and academics are totally separate. Um, I think there's such there's such a thing called kinesthetic intelligence. Mm -hmm. Um, If you ask any young black boy who plays football to describe the routes that they have to run and the different defensive schemes, I would argue that's as sophisticated as any calculus formula, as any uh, chemistry, physics formula. Like it's very complex concepts that young men and women are able to break down and identify not only from a cognitive standpoint, but then physically they actually perform the action. So but you know what's, I, what? See, but what's interesting about that is you don't appreciate it in many instances until you actually try it. Absolutely. You know, as long as absolutely. you're sitting there watching it on TV, you can get used to that. We become desensitized to it, especially if you're used to just watching high level, you know, professional athletes performing at the top level. You really just take it for granted. But let somebody get you out there and you have to try to run a pattern. Absolutely. <laughs> and then you start to appreciate that kinesthetic intelligence. Absolutely. But, but, but go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's, it's a form of brilliance that we don't talk about often enough. Um, it's similar to music and art. When you see an artist performing their craft at a high level, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's something that's beautiful to watch. And we oftentimes, because we have that mind-body duality Um, mindset which didn't come from African people um, then we begin to look at the body as an object that is separate from the mind and it actually for the body to function it requires the mind to be operating at a high frequency and a high level Um, but after doing my master's thesis um, I was able to meet some other black faculty members Dr. Deborah Stroman uh, who's still at the University of North Carolina uh, introduced me to some other black faculty members who were um, in in doing research in sports. Some of them were in African-American studies or Africana studies or mm-hmm. sociology. Some of them were in more sports-specific disciplines. Um, but when I met those individuals, they really challenged me. Um, and some of them in ways that I was, you know, uh, more accepting to at the time. Others that were uh, not as accepted. I wasn't as accepting to at the time, but nonetheless, the competitive drive that I applied to sports, once they challenged me um, in an academic sense, uh, that's all I needed. Uh, some of you have watched the Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls documentary, The Last uh-huh. Dance, over the past mm-hmm. couple of Remember how he would talk about like just the slightest thing would just trigger him to go very hard? Um, uh-huh. You know, like uh-huh. Clyde Drexler in the 90. Um, the 92 uh, finals said, you know, he was, or somebody said Clyde Drexler was better than him, and he was just like, no, that's not going to happen. 
Poor Clyde. So he him, right? Yeah, hit like Clyde. seven th- uh, three-pointers in the first half. So, um, and, that, and that was sad because Clyde didn't have nothing to do with it. No, nah, Clyde wasn't even involved in that. And Clyde is a great player. So, uh, But needless to say, I that fire got ignited in me. And um, from that, I ended up going down to the University of Georgia and working with Dr. Billy Hawkins. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the author of a book called The New Plantation, Black Athletes, College Sports, and Predominantly White Institutions. Um, and that really just fueled me to say, let me pursue a career in academia, even though I wanted to be an athletic director. Um, being a black professor, I can engage in mul- multiple levels of transformative change. I can do research that looks at the intersection of race, gender, sport, culture, activism. Um, And I can also be in the classroom and teach courses to not only other black students so that they can see you can be connected to sport beyond being an athlete and still pursue a, a successful career, but also to white students who are going to go work in the industry to help challenge them on the stereotypes and biases that they possess that oftentimes are anti black. Um, You know, I can't tell you how many of my students will say, well, yeah, black people are just naturally gifted in football and basketball. And then once I break down the research to them and I help them understand that race is a social construct. And when you look at all of the different genetic, uh, the different genes that we all possess. And even if you look at sport participations internationally, that just doesn't hold up that race in and of itself would explain performance in sport. Um, and so they begin to understand how those ideas that they were socialized into believing were actually racist in nature. But as it pertains to the second part, just briefly that I'll answer about black males and academics, a lot of the statistics that we read about black male underperformance in the K through 12 schooling process, um, within that, those statistics, they include black males who were involved in athletics. So if you look at percentages to say, you know, one of the Shots Foundation reports said that the graduation rate for black males was 59 percent. That was just one that they did. And I believe that was back in 2015 that they published that one. Well, it's not only about graduating high school that can be a challenge, but it's about being having uh, academic readiness for college. And the, the institution in which you go to makes a major difference. There's some institutions that are more supportive and helping students uh, with academic needs. And then there are other institutions like many of the high profile sport institutions that totally neglect black male um, Mm -hmm. academic needs, right? Because the idea is that you got here because of your body and your sport. Mm -hmm. We're going to keep you eligible. We're not going to really educate you because education would involve a level of critical consciousness about the system in which they're operating. And these institutions, which are an extension of our neoliberal capitalist white society, would say we actually have a better way of utilizing these bodies when they're not properly educated. Mm -hmm. Right. So it goes back to Carter G. Woodson's The Miseducation of the Negro is that the system isn't broken. It's working exactly the way that it's designed. So if we could have I remember when I was at UConn. The year they won a national championship, which was my first year there as an assistant professor, um, I would I think on the team it was uh, close to 90 percent black. Mm. And at the same time, the percentage of black male students at the university was less than four percent. Right. And then even among those that were on the team, the graduation rates 
were so low that the year before, 2014, they won the national championship. Many people don't remember. In 2013, the UConn men's basketball team was banned from the NCAA tournament because they had four consecutive years where they did not graduate over 50% of their players. Wow. So that is a powerful just illustration there that says, hey, we're going to recruit you to play ball, to make money for us, but we're not concerned about whether you earn a degree. And even if you earn a degree, we're not concerned about educating you so that you can use that knowledge to improve your communities, to improve uh, the plight of your people. So when you ask the question about academic readiness for black male athletes, it's the same question that is asked for black males overall. Mm -hmm. So that's why for a lot of black uh, scholars on black males, um, I talked to Dr. Uh, Siri McDougal the other day. Great Ah. work. Already ordered his book. I've talked to Dr. Tommy Curry before in the past, um, and I cite his work in my book. But I always tell these uh, scholars who focus on black males, even, you know, Sean Harper, who's in higher education and all these other scholars is that, hey, don't separate black male athletes out from the, the, the analysis of what all black males go through. There is some nuanced complexities to what athletes experience, but the same holistic needs that black males who aren't involved in sport need, black males in sport need it too. And I would argue they may need it more depending on the context in which they're socialized in the sport. Because for a lot of young black males, there are white individuals who are controlling sport and Mm -hmm. they don't have the social cultural connection to empower the young men to understand why sport is a means to an end, not an end in of itself. And so if you got black young black boys who have white coaches who are giving them access to these high profile AAU tournaments, football classes, giving them scholarships to these big schools helping their families in ways that, you know, because of systemic oppression, our communities were not always able to access certain type of uh, finances and resources. They begin to view that whiteness as a means to humanity. Gets back to the point I was making earlier. And William C. Roden in $40 million Slaves, he talks about that when he talks about the conveyor belt. It's this Mm -hmm. idea of let's create the illusion to right. these young black boys that you have to desire what white exactly. uh, professional exactly. league owners, sport agents, all these people have, even the shoe companies. And if you follow that carrot for long enough, they'll extract everything they want out of you. And then once you're done, it's what I call in the book. It's a figurative death. They just well, leave you to die. And then you have to figure it out after that. Now, hold on now. Now, you brought up the book, and I want to do that because we have about nine minutes. I want to give you a chance to talk about both the book and, and any other relevant projects, of, you know, that, that can kind of give us a sense of, of where your most current research is taking you to. So tell us a little bit about the book first. Great. So the book um, is called From Exploitation Back to Empowerment, Black Male Holistic Underdevelopment Through Sport and Miseducation. And the words under and miss are put in parentheses mm-hmm. because the main crux of the book is that as I was reading literature on black males who were involved in sport, they would always use a deficit based uh, theory or lens and, you know, situate black males as innately intellectually inferior mm-hmm. or athlete, innately athletically superior. Mm-hmm. And I knew through my lived experiences and my friends and family members that it was more complex than just we just played sport and we didn't focus on anything else. 
So in the book, I highlight five different socialization models that capture a, a more heterogeneous group of black males experiences in and through sport. So mm -hmm. the first model is the illusion of singular success. The second model is the elite athlete lottery model. The third mm -hmm. model is the transition recovery model. The fourth model is purposeful participation for expansive personal growth model. And then mm -hmm. the last one is the holistic empowerment model. And just to say it concisely, since we don't have time to go in depth into all of the models, basically I say when black males are miseducated, they are more likely to be exploited through schooling systems and through sport. Mm -hmm. But when they're properly educated, whether it be at the end of their careers or afterwards, which is what the transition recovery model talks about, or right. earlier in their lives, which is what the purposeful participation model talks about, is that not all black males experience identity foreclosure. Mm -hmm. A lot of black males like Myron Roll, like Kylan Moore, these individuals understood the value of academics and education from an early age because mm -hmm. of their family and it was instilled mm -hmm. in them. And they mm -hmm. always use sport as a tool to a greater aim. Both of those right. young black men that I mentioned, they were Rhodes Scholars and uh, Myron Roll is a neurosurgeon now and mm -hmm. Kylan Moore is uh, finishing up his master's and I believe he's pursuing his PhD. And then the holistic empowerment model ties into my more recent work um, around uh, black males who are involved in sport who engage in activism. And so I talk about Paul Robeson. I talk about Dr. Harry Edwards, Muhammad Ali. Um, and my new, my forthcoming book is called A Legacy of African-American Resistance and Activism Through Sport. Nice. And I go all the way back to the 1600s, all the way up to the 21st century and analyze how black males who are African-Americans, including African-American females, have used sport as a space of resistance. Mm -hmm. Some of them have used sport to engage in activism, but other times they engage in what I call borderline activism, which could be advocacy, pioneering, or just using their agency to disrupt some type of status quo. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where my work is now, and I'm really excited about getting the book out. I present a typology of activism, uh, which talks about media activism, legal activism, economic activism, uh, symbolic activism, scholarly activism, grassroots activism, mass mobilization activism. Um, and then I also present a typology of resistance because I argue that blacks' existence in oppressive societies, our existence is a form of resistance in and of itself because we're not supposed to exist at all. And if we are, we're supposed to be subservient. Mm -hmm. So whenever we do things that are non-subservient, that existence challenges the status quo. Mm -hmm. But I also argue that all of our existence isn't activism per se. So mm -hmm. the resistance typology talks about the differences between agency, uh, between pioneering, advocacy, hybrid resistance, activism, social movements, uh, revolutions, and sustained cultural empowerment. Okay. Okay. Beautiful. Now this... Uh, the, the, the next project, the next book is coming out when, would you say? It should be out by the end of the summer. Uh, I've submitted the final version to the editors, um, and uh, I, I did the revisions that they asked for. So uh, hopefully it'll be out uh, by August, um, but at, at the latest, it'll be out this fall. Um, okay. And it'll be published through Peter Lang as well. I can make sure to 
send you that information once it's available. Um, oh, it's the same publisher it. that Dr. McDougal published his Black Men's Studies book mm-hmm. um, with. Yeah. So uh, both of mm-hmm. us have you know used Peter Lang uh, for a publication outlet for our work. Um, but yes, I'm very excited about it, and I really hope, and I think it's very timely when we look at a lot of the activism of current uh, professional college um, and uh, interscholastic and youth athletes. Um, it's really important for us to understand the history and how we have always used sport, just like we use other aspects of society, uh, to champion our humanity, to champion uh, for civil rights, and right. to champion our collective progress. But tell us, and, and real quick, by the way, you mentioned Dr. McDougal. For those who don't know, I interviewed uh, Dr. McDougal on uh, on my YouTube channel, so you can go there and see the interview about his text. But go ahead and tell us, uh, in the last uh, couple minutes we have, what is your perspective on sport activism in the midst of this pandemic? What are your thoughts about where it is and how it's presented? I think we're seeing uh, an awakening of uh, black holistic athletes. Um, we're at a time right now with the pandemic mapping on to the high profile recordings of the murders of our brothers and sisters. Um, and it is sparked a level of action that it's, it's almost as if, if you're not going against it, uh, against the racism and against the oppression, um, your, your passiveness is a part of the problem as well. And we've mm-hmm. always known that that's the case, but up until this point, it, outside of the 1960s where you had the civil rights movement, black power movement um, taking place where you had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Muhammad Ali, Bill Russell, uh, Jim Brown, uh, Wilma Rudolph, uh, all of these individuals who were integrally connected to the broader social movement, um, we're seeing an awakening. LeBron James has been at the forefront, Venus and Serena Williams. Um, it was great to see the NFL players, Michael Thomas, Deshaun Watson, Patrick Mahomes. Uh, a lot of college athletes um, are, are starting to take a stand um, and express, you know, going back to the Missouri uh, boycott uh, back in 2015. And even before that, in 2014, you had the Northwestern football players who filed with the National Labor Relations Board uh, so that they could be treated as employees and get workers' compensation and other employee benefits and also the rights to form as a union so that they could challenge um, policies and conditions that were uh, unfavorable to them while they were in school. Um, so I think that we're in a, a pivotal time. I'm excited to see that more uh, Black holistic athletes are using their platforms to champion social justice and racial justice. Um, but only time will tell if this is going to be a permanent shift or if this is just a, 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 a brief moment. What I will say is this. Similar to sport, I think we ought to look at athletes as well as all of our, our community members. We all play different positions that lead to a collective goal. Mm-hmm. Sometimes what I find in our general society is that we're expecting the athletes to be the lead activists. Mm-hmm. And in a respectful way, many of them may not have the knowledge and the information to be the activists. So yeah. you're asking them to do something that they haven't necessarily been right. training to do. Now, many right. of them are, but it would almost be the equivalent of asking um, Odell Beckham Jr. to play quarterback. Mm-hmm. Right. Like that isn't the position that he's been training to play. Right. Like 
how about we maximize him as a wide receiver and that can still be a part of our victory, right? Uh, so it's this idea of how do we leverage all of our community members, including holistic athletes, and, and they can use their platform. For some of them, social media activism may be the biggest thing they do. For others of them, it may be the economic activism. But the idea that we judge them whether they're protesting or not, I think is highly problematic because I think that they can utilize their resources in a multitude of ways, such as LeBron James building the school in Akron, Ohio. We can talk about the curriculum and all the other things, but the idea that he was intentional about building a school in a community that has experienced systematic economic deprivation, and many of those students are young black males, similar to him when he was growing up in Akron, we have to say that that is a positive thing. Now, we hold can on, hold into, on, Dr. You know, Dr. Cooper. We, oh, sorry. we we kind of run out of time, but oh, I, wanted, sorry. I wanted to thank you for being on the Onyx Report. And just real briefly, can you tell tell people where they can find your book? Yes, um, from exploitation back to empowerment. You can find it on Amazon uh, dot com as well as uh, Peter Lang Publisher. P E T E R L A N G. Um, uh, my information is at the University of Massachusetts Boston, UMass Boston. Uh, my email is Joseph J O S E P H N dot Cooper at UMB dot edu. Uh, but yes, you can find the book on Amazon and the second book, uh, A Legacy of African American Resistance and Activism Through Sport, uh, will be available on Amazon and Peter Lang as well. All right. Well, thank you for being on the Onyx Report, brother. I really appreciate it. I am here to tell you, brothers, we are not criminals by birth, perennial rapists, incapable intellects, man children, sperm donors, child support wellsprings, success objects, walking phalluses, ATM machines, lottery tickets, unpaid bodyguards, interchangeable stepfathers, child discipline proxies, unpaid repairmen, workhorses, or any other socially accepted dehumanizing stereotype. We are thinkers, inventors, innovators, leaders, fathers, and men. Embrace your humanity, know your worth, and extend your time, attention, and resources only to those who genuinely respect you. And remember, your worth is not defined by meeting other people's narcissistic, selfish, and unrealistic needs. You define your worth. Peace.